Good morning, y'all. My name is Matthew. Um, today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 31 through 47. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children, preschool and younger, you are invited to escort your kids to the front of the room to join Kids Rock outside. As you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will, you will be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize that you are descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I am telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of, the fa of your father, the devil, and you love to do evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? And since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see everyone here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at High Rock. Um, we have an exciting treat this morning. I'm super excited about this morning. We have um, Chrissy Carroll is going to be our preacher this morning. Um, it is her first time preaching for us here at High Rock. Uh, she is uh, a wife to Hunter. They have two children, Jeremiah and Elias. They're going to be future Major League Baseball players. They know everything about baseball already at their very young age. They're super skilled and talented. I'm super excited to see how that plays out over the years. Um, but Chrissy and Hunter and their family have been part of our community for the last few months. Um, she is working her way through her seminary degree at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Whoop, whoop. No? Nothing? Nothing? Right? All right, just one. He didn't even go there. Um, but it's a great school. Uh, she's worked in a variety of ministry contexts before being part of High Rock Haverhill in different churches and even overseas. Um, I've been so thankful to get to know them as a family. They've been one of my summer highlights. They are very faithful to the Lord and do so with their actions and their lives, not just with their words. So I'm excited for her to be um, preaching with us this morning um, and for her voice to be one of the voices that we hear the Lord through. 
Um, so I'm going to invite her up in a second. As we do, let's enter into that moment of pause and silence that we typically do on Sunday morning to allow the Lord to do the work in our hearts and to make us fertile ground for his word. So please join me in a moment of silence. Lord God, in this space, as we come before you as a faith community, as your children, as your people, we open our hearts to you and to your spirit. Holy Spirit, illuminate us, show us your truth in these words, convict us of the hope and the life that we have in you, and provide that for us even more today. Um, I pray for our um, time this morning that you would nourish us and sustain us and give us hope. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Good morning. Like Matt said, my name's Chrissy. It's really nice to be here with all of you this morning and to worship together. A few weeks ago, I made mashed potatoes for the first time in a while. In our house, we only eat mashed potatoes when I make them from scratch, because half of us can't eat dairy. So that evening, after whipping up the potatoes, I put the bowl on the table and I offered some to our kids. A couple of minutes later, our five-year-old, Elias, took a bite of his potatoes and he looked up and he said, Mommy, how did you make these potatoes so good without any dairy? Feeling pretty good about myself, I replied. Well, I used vegan butter, salt and pepper, chicken broth, and, and garlic. Without missing a beat, he gave me a little smirk and he said, Oh, geez, you didn't use any potatoes? <laughs> nice catch, Elias. I may be the only one here to have recounted a potato-less potato recipe. But have you ever had a moment where you just completely missed the point or the main ingredient? The thing that makes mashed potatoes what they are is the potatoes. Everything else is extra. It's optional. It's up to the cook. And we're going to discover that that's what happened with Jesus and the people around him in this passage. They completely missed the point. They were so focused on the extras to their identity that they missed the core of what it is to follow Jesus. They missed Jesus. Now, I'd love to write this off as a them problem, but if I'm honest, I've missed more in life than just potatoes. It's easy to get snared by the extras of life and lose sight of the most important thing, of knowing Jesus. Have you ever been so focused on doing things for God that you forgot to be present with God? I have. Or maybe it's mixing up priorities, putting something like work, school, family, or even religious activities ahead of God. Those are good things in their proper place, like spices and broth mixed in with flavoring the potatoes. But they're not God, and when we give them the first priority, they enslave us, keeping us from flourishing the way that God desires for us. And we see this in our passage. Let's take a quick look at verse 30 first. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. Now, this is an important starting place because in this encounter, Jesus isn't talking to people who are antagonistic to his teaching. He's talking to people who claim to believe in him. And this sets up the issue that Jesus addresses. These followers claim to believe in Jesus, 
but will only follow his teaching when it doesn't clash with their own ideologies. Beyond that, they're enslaved to those ideologies, and they don't even realize it. They claim that their identity is found in God, but they're identifying with other things. And Jesus confronts this. So he starts by defining what it is to be his disciple and what it's not. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. Essentially, to be my disciple is to do as I do. It's not to follow me around and say you believe in me. Many of us have heard his next statement often, and because of that familiarity, we can miss the core ingredients. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We could rush past this, assuming we know it. But what does Jesus mean? If the truth will set us free, from what? Are we enslaved to something? What truth are we talking about? And how will it set us free? Does this even apply to us? Well, the crowd around Jesus certainly didn't think it applied to them. But we are the descendants of Abraham, they answer. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean, you will be set free? Here, they fundamentally don't understand either who Jesus is or who they are. And I suspect this is what Jesus is driving at when he starts this discussion. He's challenging them to examine where they're placing their core identity. He's pushing them to discover who or what they're trusting for meaning, security, and to determine their value and worth. Pay attention to what they say first. We're Abraham's descendants. They know Jesus is discussing spiritual freedom. And their response is, well, we're the children of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. We're not spiritually enslaved, Jesus. We're good. If you'll allow me a Chrissy paraphrase, here's how that might sound for us today. But Jesus, I grew up in church, went to youth group, went on missions trips. Come on, I'm in seminary. What more do you want? Maybe you have your own paraphrase. But Jesus, look at what I've done in my job, in my community, my family. Look at my political activities or the money I've donated. I'm not spiritually enslaved, Jesus. I'm good. To that, Jesus responds, those activities don't bring you spiritual freedom. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. He questions their spiritual superiority. Are you sure you're the child and not the slave? On what grounds? Because if they're slaves like Jesus insinuates, then their place in the household of God is not nearly as presumed as they think. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, says this, there's nothing worse than insecurity. Serving God and living faithfully can become a constant guilt trip of trying harder and doing better next time. Maybe you can relate. I've spent much of my Christian life battling insecurity, living out of fear and a desperate determination to earn acceptance. 
This is what slavery does to us. When we're not certain of our place in the household, not certain we're the beloved children of God, we constantly jockey for position, trying to prove we're worthy or the best, whatever that even means to us. We become slaves to our sin, slaves to our constant need to prove that we're good enough. It's like arguing over whose brand of chicken broth is better, but we've forgotten the potatoes. And the people around Jesus were doing this. He says, yes, I realize you're the descendants of Abraham. And yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied. For if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. No, you are imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. The irony here is that they're proving Jesus' point. He's trying to help them see clearly, to see the truth of how much they need him. And they're only interested in proving their superiority, proving they don't need what he's offering. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come from God. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love the things he does. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Ouch. Jesus doesn't go for God as their father any more than he went for Abraham. He basically responds, you are the children of the one you resemble, the one whose identity looks like yours, the one you share values with, and that's not God. I think Jesus is trying to help them understand sin and their relationship with God better. I wonder if when they heard Jesus say slaves to sin, they thought breaking God's law. Maybe one of the 613 Jewish laws from the Old Testament commands. Growing up in church, I've definitely heard sin described as rule-breaking. Kids, maybe you've heard that too. That you're a good kid if you follow the rules and a bad kid if you break them. Maybe you've also thought about God that way. That if you follow God's rules, he'll love you more. And you'll get to be a part of his family or get to go to heaven. But that's not what God's like. Following the rules can be good, but that's not why God loves us. And it's not what makes us part of his family. And maybe those with Jesus that day missed that God longs for so much more than really good rule followers. That what we're enslaved to might be more about our posture towards God and about our attitude towards God than about one particular thing that we did. Because sin can be any belief, any behavior or thought that gets us to rely on ourselves instead of on God, harming us and those around us in the process. I want to pause here and acknowledge that Jesus isn't mincing words, which begs the question, why? 
why is Jesus being so hard on them? And I think it might be for the same reason that we yell at our kids if they're about to run out into traffic. Because it's serious. The stakes are high. Lives, souls are at stake. And you don't mince words when souls are at stake. I want to be clear that I don't think these words are aimed at the person who truly loves Jesus and is following him but makes mistakes along the way. I think they're aimed at the self-centered, entitled person who imagines that Jesus is a prize that they can collect rather than a person to follow. They're treating Jesus like an accessory they can purchase instead of a gift to humbly receive. They're trying to remake Jesus into their image instead of being remade into his. And that separates us from God, and that's serious. So what do we do? It's simple, hard, and comes with a beautiful promise. Let's go back to the beginning. You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The solution is we remain in Jesus. Truth isn't some abstract idea. We hear truth and might think fact or accurate information. Things like, I live in Haverhill or I have two children, or the moon is made of cheese. Like the game, two truths and a lie. But that's not the only way the Bible talks about truth. The word truth is the same word used all over the Gospel of John to talk about Jesus. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 14.6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. We can't separate truth from Jesus. If we're going to know the truth, it's going to be through knowing and trusting Jesus. There's a promise here, a beautiful, powerful promise. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus didn't say might or maybe. He said, you will. When we remain in Jesus, when we obey his teaching and find our identity in him, we will experience ever-increasing freedom, both for ourselves and in our interactions with others. But there is a commitment here. Jesus' teaching isn't always easy to follow, and it goes against our tendency to want to do things our own way. So what does this look like? I can't tell you exactly what it's going to look like for you but I can share a few of the things that it's looked like for me. <clears throat> About five years ago, my husband Hunter and I owned a home in downtown Beverly. He worked for a local insurance company and had received promotions every year for six straight years. I quit my job after Elias was born and was home with our two boys. We were living the roles we thought we were supposed to, and neither of us felt particularly fulfilled or free doing it. Until one day, Hunter came home from work and said to me, I feel like God wants us to sell our house. Oh, really now? As calmly as I could muster, I said, okay, and do what? To which he replied, I have no idea. Great. I prayed about that, hoping to hear no. 
But as I prayed and spent time listening to God, I felt this strange peace about saying, yes. So we put our house on the market with no idea where we were going next. I'd love to tell you I was a really good sport about it, but I wasn't. I was upset at God a lot that summer. My prayer went something like, God, I'm cleaning my house and getting displaced every few days with a three-year-old and a nine-month-old so people can come look at it. You said sell it, but we've had three deals fall apart for totally crazy reasons. And every time I ask where we're going next, you say, I'll tell you when it's time. Well, now seems like a really good time to me, God. And repeatedly that summer, God asked me this, Chrissy, who are you going to believe? Is your security and your identity this house? Hunter's job, this life you've built? Or is it me? That summer was hard, but it was also glorious. Where I had previously struggled to spend time with God with two small boys underfoot, I started using every afternoon time to worship and to pray. And I experienced an awareness of the presence of God with me in a profound way. On more than one occasion, it felt like God was so near that if I put out my hand, I would touch him. And I finally understood the end of the book of Job, where Job never gets his questions answered, but God shows up, and it was enough for him. It was enough for me, too. We sold our house about four months later, and about three weeks before we closed, we found an incredible little winter rental in Gloucester, a gift from God. Again, feeling led by God, Hunter quit his job right after we moved. I went back to work part-time at the law firm where I had worked before our kids were born. And we waited for God to show us what was next. During those six months, God called me to seminary. The thing is, we could only afford seminary because of the money we made from our house. Believing God six months earlier left us free to follow God into this new calling. As I prepared to go to seminary, a couple of sincere Christians who I respected tried to convince me not to go. They saw and acknowledged my gift for ministry, but didn't feel seminary was valuable or that it was a good place for me as a woman. I listened, knowing they genuinely loved me, but went anyways, convinced that was God's leading. The last challenge for me was myself. Since my teenage years, I'd felt drawn towards overseas missions. I spent a year after high school serving at a Christian camp in France. During high school and college, I went on missions trips in Mexico, Rwanda, and the DR Congo, France, and East Asia, and spent a semester abroad in Israel. I was going overseas. But God never opened that door. The call to seminary also felt like a call to full-time ministry in the U.S., but I didn't have a context for that. Over the next year, God gradually showed me the ways I had bought the lie that women don't lead in the American church, which meant the only context I had for women leading the way God was calling me to lead was overseas. But it was only as I leaned into Jesus and where he was leading me that I began to understand his calling for me here. A couple of years into seminary, and several more life changes later, I was working full-time for the law firm while doing seminary part-time. Interesting story there, too, by the way. When a friend called me. 
The church where he pastored was hiring for a director of children's ministry. After a good deal of prayer and consideration, I applied for, was offered, and accepted the job, despite not being anything like my original plan. <clears throat> and I loved it. I hadn't felt that alive or that much like I was doing exactly what God created me to do since serving overseas. Now, that's not to say it was easy. It wasn't. But I was using the gifts God had given me, and I felt fulfilled. So naturally, I figured that was it. I poured my heart into the children and families and mentally started planning for the next five to ten years there. Then a few months ago, through prayer and conversations with trusted friends, God led me to leave and take another position back at the law firm. That was not my plan. But I'm confident that God is bringing me into something good. I see glimpses of that already, but I don't have the full picture. I've found joy in my new position at the firm. And I know I'm still called to pastoral ministry, but I have no idea exactly what that's going to look like or the path that I'm going to take to get there. I'm relearning the truth that I don't have to see that right now. My identity isn't in my occupation or in knowing what's next. If I knew the five-year plan, I don't think I would have felt the need to walk each day in step with God. I wouldn't have felt the need to ask, what next, Jesus? Or who are you calling me to be today? And that's exactly where I've experienced freedom. In walking with Jesus, in being obedient to him, I've discovered and developed an intimacy with Jesus, a relationship that goes far beyond study or verses memorized or even obedience to a distant being. If I had insisted on trusting my plan, focused on the vegan butter that was our house or the pepper that was Hunter's job, I might have missed the potatoes, all the life and joy that I've experienced moving into this calling to pastoral ministry. I would have been enslaved to a mindset that prevented flourishing, missing out on good gifts God wanted to give me because I would have been blinded by holding too tightly to what was comfortable. There's a quote from the Olympic runner, Eric Liddell, where in response to the expectations and pressures of others, he responds, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Freedom to me feels like that, like feeling the pleasure of my father as I go about my day, because I'm walking in step with him, because I know whose I am. And I know that when I'm listening to him, I don't have to live up to all the expectations that others throw at me. I still believe the lies sometimes. I still care too much what others think about me. I haven't come to a place where the only voice that I hear is his, or the only strength that I lean on is his. But I know that's where Jesus is leading me. And I want to go there with him. So my question for you this morning is, who are you going to believe? Where is it that you're finding your identity? Is it in your job, your family, your social standing, or your dreams? Or is it in Jesus? These things, good things even, aren't God. They can't free us or help us flourish, 
or give us status in the family of God. Only Jesus can do that. Where is it that you feel a lot of fear or get irrationally angry? Sometimes the things that we fear to lose or that elicit a disproportionately strong response from us are the things that we're building our life on instead of Jesus. There are equivalent of, but we're Abraham's children. We're not enslaved. We're good. Are you willing to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you places that you're believing lies or putting your identity in something other than Jesus or listening to a voice that's not his? Because if you're willing to honestly ask, he's ready to walk with you in that, to speak truth to the lies, to bring you into freedom. When we're certain that we're the beloved children of our Heavenly Father, we don't need another identity. When we're confident that our identity is found in Jesus, we don't need anything else. We have nothing left to prove. We're completely free. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that in you is truth. That in you we have freedom. I thank you that the life that you offer us is one of abundance and joy and freedom. And I ask you this morning to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, to soften our hearts, to open our minds to the places that you want to free us from things, that you want to bring us into life and joy and abundance. We thank you for your goodness and the life that you offer us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.